Ableton is not seeing any audio, so let me just Uh-oh. restart that. That's okay. I think it's just because I flicked my interface on and off to reset it. I saw a meme somebody, I think it might have, I don't remember if it was on Facebook or somewhere, where there, there was somebody at a concert where the, the band's setup had broken. And the, the, and so the, <laughs> instead of seeing like the whatever thing they were projecting behind them, it was, it was Ableton. And they're like, oh man, I finally get to see Ableton live. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You know, the funny thing about Ableton is that it's kind of a, Victor Frankenstein situation where Ableton is the company and live is actually the program, but everybody calls the program Ableton, even though Ableton is a company that makes live and the push and several other products. Oh, okay. Interesting. You know, yeah, not that interesting. Actually, (laughs) it's kind of one of those deals like escalator where I think they're the company that lost their patent to the name escalator because the word escalator for moving staircase became so ubiquitous oh. that the government was like, you're actually not allowed to own this. Everyone says it. Man, are they going to do that with like Band-Aid and Kleenex nope. and all the other situations like nope. that? <laughs> I believe it was Kleenex or another one of the really famous ones like that where they actually set the precedent that made it so that they stopped revoking copyright mm. based on that. Okay. And I don't remember if this was, you know, I think this was probably the very early 1900s, but, you know, it's not like I just looked this stuff up. I'm pulling on old information <laughs> from the back of my brain here. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, one thing, I didn't put a story about this in there, but I did want to talk about it because it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think I saw that you saw the post about the fact that Jeff Bezos has now decided to do, what if we did distributed landlordism? Oh, yeah, the um, $100. <laughs> all you need is 100 bucks to become a landlord. Yeah. Well, and I also like that somebody pointed out, they're like, you remember how like the 2008 mortgage crisis started because all these banks started repackaging mortgage debt and selling it to people and then regular people who didn't have money to lose on those stupid bets lost a bunch of their investment. Isn't this the same thing, but like Mm -hmm. even ideologically worse because it turns everyone into a landlord? (laughs) Yeah, and it's also, I think, on a technical level, much worse because it's much more direct, right? Like when the banks do that kind of debt division repackaging and kind of try to make a a more diffuse debt market so they can create essentially what I think is a higher debt cap and Mm -hmm. make more money off of debt that way, they have to do all of this like legal and technical subterfuge and like... May, you know, they, they talk to their friends in high places, they get approvals, and I'm not saying that makes it okay, it's still perfectly evil, but when you put it on the app, and you hand it to Joe mm-hmm. Schmo, and you're like, chuck your hundred bucks in to make nine bucks a month off this thing, you start to enter the realm of, like, when the computer does it, it happens much faster, so, yeah. like, the, the period of time between launching this product and hitting the collapse of the market it operates in is going to be, like, one one hundredth of the time it took the banks to reach that tipping point. <laughs> well, and I, I also feel like it shares a lot of the same characteristics of like, uh, it, as far as like impacts on the social fabric, um, mm. as something like a 401k where in the, the way that those, you know, have been used as a manner to like justify the extraordinary excesses produced by the stock market by being like, no, look, we've democratized investing. Everybody's a company owner now. Well, this is, I feel like this is going to try and do the same thing, but for landlordism, where I feel like in recent years, especially since the onset of the pandemic, as inequality has gotten worse and worse and just conditions for the working class have gotten worse. And specifically as landlords have become more and more rapacious with their price gouging Mm -hmm. on rent and, 
how nobody can afford to live anywhere, I think there's been a pretty strong, you know, uh, even if we do have a very divided working class, mm-hmm. most people can agree that landlords are thieves. Um, whereas I feel like a project like this is going to be very intentionally trying to be like, no, look, see, what if everyone can be a landlord? Actually, mm-hmm. being a landlord is like being an entrepreneur. Well, and it's also like market manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. Because like Amazon is a major landowner in the United States. And I think Jeff Bezos, in terms of some of the foundations and and various other things he chairs and is a part of, might even own technically more than Amazon does. Um, Once you add it on top of what Amazon owns. But like he, um, I I think part of what's happening here is that the real estate market is after 10 years of economists saying that it would see major corrections this coming uh, quarter this next quarter actually not that one we were wrong but the next quarter major <laughs> corrections we're starting to finally see those corrections i saw an article about some uh like real estate prospectors in california who had bought homes in the san francisco area for like six hundred and eighty thousand dollars or something like that and we're now trying to unload them for like three hundred and ninety thousand dollars and so that shit to happen here (laughs) well and here's the thing is if it happens anywhere especially in in super inflated markets there are gonna it's gonna have ramifications across the country because those are like the linchpins that the the real estate investors use to justify the high prices Mm. they're like well look at san francisco yeah but new york um, and boston and shit like a couple other cities what he's trying to do as far as i can tell is if he makes everybody have a little bit of skin in the game in a fairly inconsequential way in landlording then everybody's gonna suddenly start having like oh well i need to protect property values i need to make sure the market keeps going back up and so he's trying to generate consumer enthusiasm for making sure that landowners don't lose money which is oh man incredible magic well no but to be honest i that's honestly kind of the genius part of it because i mean that's something like you know one of the first really great i think books i've read i read on like the political economy of the u.s mm-hmm. in like more recent years is mike davis's uh, prisoners of the american dream which is a fantastic book big recommend but in there one of the things he talks about is sort of the double-edged sword of uh home ownership being made much easier in the mm. years after world war ii by sort of the dividend won by the the you know organized workers in the the strikes of 1946 the treaty of detroit with uaw basically giving up shop floor control in exchange for record benefits record wages pensions all that sort of thing you know creating that environment where a working class person can be a homeowner where Mm -hmm. you know like from one side of things that looks like a brilliant success of social democracy but on the other side it then turns all those those workers who can now buy a house and it also tended to be a very specific type of worker who was getting those higher wages and was able to buy a house Mm -hmm. and not necessarily every worker uh that now that strata of workers is deeply as you were saying deeply invested in keeping property values above a certain height and protecting their property values which is easy to it's like easy fodder for you know racist and and hyper nationalist uh sorts of of organizing by the far right making it easier to like drive wedges into the working class but now it's even more comical right like the tragedy of that homeownership manipulation tactic from you know close to a century ago by this point 
is was at least on its face like you could kind of understand it because it's like at least oh, you got I a have... house out of it. <laughs> yeah, you got a house. You're like I have this, you yeah. know, and it's it's ages ago. So you're like I spent thirty five thousand dollars on this single family right. home, and by God, I'm gonna make sure that by the time I die, it's worth fifty five thousand right, dollars, right, so right. that my kids can have a nice, valuable place to live. Whatever, whatever. But now the version that Bezos is floating is some dude who probably just lost thousands of dollars on crypto rolling around in his busted out Miata with the Instagram <laughs> sticker on the back saying like, oh yeah, man, all you got to do is drop 250 bucks on this app and boom, you're making 40 bucks a month. And then all you got to do is make sure that you're so fervently loyal to the national slash corporatist cause here in the United <laughs> States that you will continue to get 3% extra return on investment annually and don't you understand man i'm gonna be able to retire by the time i'm 316 <laughs> I mean, i'm just like thinking about making one of those domino memes where it's like small domino 2023 jeff bezos creates distributed <laughs> landlording app and then it's like 2030 jair bolsonaro jr elected president of america <laughs> Ah, God, I mean, it's the names out of respect for the survivors. The names have been changed (laughs) (laughs) out of respect for the dead. The rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. Well, on that note, we should uh, probably talk about labor, I guess. Stoppage, everybody. Uh, my name is John. I'm Dan. And Lena is out on very important business this week, so it's just your two-host show, so I hope you enjoy it. We're entirely listener-supported, so thank you so much if you do support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. Message me on Patreon if you need stickers, and I'll handle that for you. And if you want to help the show a little more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help. I mean, you could leave a five-star review of the new season of Fargo and find an interesting way to name-drop us. That would be cool, too. oh man uh yeah one right before we get into like the actual stories that we have written up i did just want to throw in like a quick uh shout out for the uaw becoming the largest uh union in the country and certainly the most prominent one to add their voice to the call for a ceasefire in palestine with of course you know this week being the end of the the short truce as uh, Israel has once again resumed their genocidal aggression against Gaza. And I did just want to mention, you know, Sean Fain tweeted out after the uh, the union's uh, executive board voted on this. Uh, it's saying, quote, I'm proud that the UAW International Union is calling for a ceasefire in Israel and Palestine. From opposing fascism in World War II to mobilizing against apartheid South Africa and the Contra War, the UAW has constantly stood for justice across the globe. Yeah, I mean, absolutely correct. And I mean, you guys could have done more at various times, but you have you do have a pretty good track record. So glad to see that you're continuing. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, we're talking about the United States. So unfortunately, we kind of have to grade on a scale and and like from a relative point of view, the UAW has been more on the Mm -hmm. right side of these things than the vast majority of like non-communist unions in the U.S. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And also, I mean, it makes me think about how right now is maybe, and I hate to say it this way, one of the most persuasive moments 
for getting people behind a ceasefire because we've already had the temporary mm -hmm. ceasefire that Israel from day one took every opportunity to attempt to kind of sort of break, kind of bend, and well, then outright started breaking they, immediately they just later in the day. They kidnapped more people than they released during yeah. the pause. Like, yeah. So, I mean, even if all of the... Uh, the just waterfall of evidence that Israel is operating a genocide here and is utterly in the wrong wasn't enough for you before the ceasefire. Just look at how Israel versus Hamas and other Palestinian groups, which never get mentioned, handled the ceasefire during that time. And I think the difference is so stark. I mean, this yeah. is textbook. Look in the history book shit. Easily identify the good guys. It's not a <laughs> difficult. Yeah, task. no, I mean. And more and more unions are, you know, are joining this at, at this point, you know, between the UAW and the APWU, the, the Postal Workers Union. That's like half a million workers right there just between mm -hmm. them. Uh, I did I, I did want to throw like a negative shout out, though, unfortunately, to the leadership of the AFT, where Randy Weingarten continues to be a lockstep supporter of the U.S. government's uh, complete backing of this genocide. Uh, in fact, praising uh, specifically Tony Blinken after he went and gave uh, the Israeli government the green light to resume their assault on Gaza. So uh, that sucks. Because, uh, like, look, even you don't have to be... This is one of those issues. It's like, you don't have to be... A, you don't have to agree with all my politics. You don't have to be a communist to, like, just look at this situation and be like, yeah, they, they murdered 8,000 children and that should stop. Like, Yeah, no, <laughs> but you don't understand, Dan. Look, Tony Blinken is the reasonable adult in the room, okay? <laughs> when I saw the video where Biden called... Uh, Xi, a dictator, and you saw Blinken putting his head in his hands because that's such a diplomatically inadvisable move. That's how you know he's a good guy. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's that headline from the Washington, I, I think it was the Washington Post, might have been the New York Times, might have been somewhere else, I don't remember. What's the difference? It might, it might have been Politico, but like, uh, where that looked like an onion headline where it was like, U.S. supplies Israel 2,000 pound bunker buster bombs, and then the sub headline is like, Biden, you know, works to ensure Israel will reduce casualties I'm mm -hmm. just like this is this is every american news story it's you've got you've got material reality and then just this attempt to pay, like plaster over this incredibly thin and unbelievable mm -hmm. ideological sheen over it to make you not see it oh it's like the headline i saw today and i'm paraphrasing because it was like a screen cap of a headline but it was something like uh fossil fuel executives irritated that they are not included in discussion about reducing emissions say that uh, coal and gas have a big role to play in reducing <laughs> emissions what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> well yeah i mean that's when you see people pushing hydrogen a lot because they're just mm -hmm. like look we can make hydrogen from natural gas never mind the fact that that means you have to mine natural gas <laughs> i i have a fucking idea how about we invest in solar and wind and nuclear appropriately 50 years ago that you, would be a good plan you also don't even have to come up with a plan you just copy what china's doing like they, they, yeah. they they're already laid out the plan for you <laughs> they figured it out and china's a big place with a lot of regions that have different conditions so i'm sure you can find one that's relatively similar to where you live <laughs> but anyways back to what we were talking about like i just true you know i i think that the the, the movement here by the uaw is a huge step it's really great to see and it really it, you know shows how much work has already been done i think mm -hmm. in you know reviving bringing the labor movement back to being the powerful progressive force for the working class that it can be but also the fact that you know it's taken two months to get to this point 
Um, and the fact that we still have most of the AF, pretty much all of the AFL-CIO except the APWU uh, still uh, it, at the very least behind the, the government response by saying nothing, which again, right. a neutral response in a situation of injustice is siding with the status quo. Um, Just look at UN vote abstentions. They're very telling. Yeah. So clearly there is a, a, a lot of work still to do on organizing democratic reform within unions and just political education. But uh, did definitely want to shout out the UAW, this really big step, really good to see. Uh, and, and and it just fits, you know? I mean, it's 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 uh, in in line with everything else we've been seeing from the really great changes since, uh, you know, the election of Sean Fain and the UAW members United Slate. Absolutely. Well, uh, to get into some of our stories, uh, right off the top, we have a follow-up with the Portland teachers who have ended their strike and ratified a new contract. So this is after three weeks on strike. We saw Portland's teachers reach a new deal this week to return to the classrooms of Oregon's largest city. Teachers began their first ever strike back on November 1st after their contract expired to demand better learning conditions for their students. Smaller class sizes, more preparation time, safer and cleaner facilities, along with higher pay, were some of the core issues workers walked out to fight for. And in the new agreement, we did see teachers win raises of 6.25% this year, 4.5 and 3% in the following years for a total raise of about 14% over the three-year deal. This is up from the district's initial offer of only 10.9%, which is a total increase of about $28 million in terms of budget. This is the largest three-year raise in the district's history. And it came after a walkout. So yeah. <laughs> real one plus one equals two hours on this show. Well, yeah, well, I, that's one of those things that I think is always interesting, you know, when you see with specifically with public unions, with teachers unions, because while there is still the the, the boss worker relationship there, uh, ideologically, like the boss in this case, the administration, the school board, the school district, uh, as government officials have to play things differently mm-hmm. for the most part. I mean, unless you're in like a hard right state run by like just complete ghouls instead of ones who yeah, have yeah, to pretend uh, to be nice. Superintendent Joe Arpaio. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but you know, in a lot of states, and and this is in 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 Oregon, you know, you have they have to be like, oh no, we we want to give the teachers all the things that they want, but we also have to be fiscally responsible. Blah 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 blah. And, but then it's like, okay, well, they went on strike, and you agreed to more money, so clearly, all this talk about this stuff being impossible was not true. <laughs> so like, you just need to push harder, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that it's 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 like those raises, you know, fourteen percent over three years. You compare that to recent inflation, that'll largely like cover the last couple of years of inflation. But you know, I think another thing that's important to mention is with teacher strikes specifically. I mean, we see this with nursing strikes too, but I think teacher strikes are some of the ones where we see most often the key demands are not even wages. They're, they're right. like, we're really striking to get better situations for our students. And so, like, uh, you know, I, this contract securing things like uh, more paid planning time for teachers to do their jobs, ensuring the district uh, devotes resources to providing mental health support for students uh, by providing an additional eight full-time staff just for that uh, job. Um, that's been, like, a key demand we've seen from a lot of teachers' unions around the, the country since the worst mm-hmm. days of the pandemic. 
Well, and you got to imagine these students that end up using these resources that the teachers union has made sure is provided for them are going to go on in their lives, you know, being appreciative of that, obviously, because it helped them, but also like maybe carrying some political motivation to support workers and support teachers going forward. Because I never had anything like that available to me when I was a student. Well, and it also, I think it's a good object lesson for everybody, not just for the students, but everybody to be Mm -hmm. like, well, hey, you know, we... They said we should vote for different people if we wanted different policies, and we did that, and then nothing changed. And then the teachers went on strike, and they got the policy changes we wanted. Hmm. Wow. Mystifying. <laughs> Maybe there's a lesson I will study there. this for 100 years before learning a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like other things that were in the deal, like uh, elementary and middle school teachers will now have an additional hour and a half of paid planning and preparation time per week, which was a key uh, issue that they were, you know, trying to resolve. Because that's one of the things I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about when they think about, you know, the job of being a teacher. Like, obviously, you have the whole school day, but it's like you have to be able to prepare for the school. You can't, you know, they're like, teachers aren't just doing that off the top of their head. Like, there's a lot right. of work to prepare lesson plans, materials, go over, you know, kids' grading to, like, do just have, like, you know, a time where you can talk to individual students about how they're doing, stuff like that, help them out. So there's, like, it's an incredible, like, amount of time that, that teachers have to devote to this stuff. So like those sorts of, of things, even if it's just, you know, an hour and a half per week can make a big difference. Oh Um, yeah. It's unbelievable. If I had an hour and a half per week, extra time to prepare for all of my fucking projects, even if it was not per project, just an extra, there was an extra hour and a half in the week. Use it as you need, John. Do you know how much better my life would be? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, and then finally, you know, as they mentioned, one of the other things that that the teachers have been fighting for was just safer buildings. And so Mm -hmm. the deal also secured $20 million in funding from the district for, uh, HVAC improvements to the buildings, uh, so heating, ventilation, and air conditioning for people who don't know that acronym, but um, uh, as well as you know things like uh, pest control and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now I will well, say, also- as, as somebody who works on building renovations, twenty million dollars—that's that's good. It's not yeah. going to really address the problem at that many schools. <laughs> It's kind of like when I go to my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm having a little bit of a financially difficult week and I'm curious if there's anything you could do to help me. And she's like, I think there's $60 in my purse. And I'm like, mom, I am 32 years old. (laughs) $60 is like a a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, I mean, look, $20 million, that will make a difference. They will be able to go to the worst schools that don't have, Mm -hmm. you know, AC and they can put in things like heat pumps. They're going to have, be able to go do renovations on some of these buildings where they're having problems with pests or maybe they prep. Again, this gets into more of my job on building renovations. It's like they probably have a lot of uh, problems with water infiltration. But anyways, Mm this will help. But, uh, you know, it's another place where it really points to the problem of the state needs to actually invest the money in these facilities if they really claim to care about kids' educations like they all, of course, say they do. Right, which is the kind of thing we might see get handled in the public teachers and other public workers general strike of 2029 that we all know is coming. (laughs) Right. But yeah, so there there are some other issues with this as well, because unfortunately, the deal does not include hard caps on class sizes, which is something we talk about being super important on this show all the time, and was also a key demand of both teachers and many families. Understandably, parents want their kids to get a good education and recognize that a classroom with 45 students in it is mm-hmm. not going to be able to provide that. The district however, refused to budge on that point, only agreeing to adopt quote-unquote thresholds beyond which teachers will receive extra pay. 
Here's the thing about pay. It doesn't make you able to overcome structural impediments to doing your job. It just makes you better at doing a job that's doable, but you didn't want to do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> administrators it, and bosses do not understand what pay is, which mystifies me sometimes. I, yeah, I will say, though, like if you get into the one of these situations where you have like the other side's completely intransigent and hard caps, mm-hmm. Uh, like when you're dealing with a, at least a school district, and this this is probably less applicable if you're like you know say uh, an um, an IATSE member dealing with a giant Hollywood studio that's got billions and billions of dollars. When you in when you had these like overage um, payments that they they got mm-hmm. in this, if you get them to a certain amount, it does kind of become a deterrent where you can then eventually in your future negotiations be like. You know, right. th- these overage payments cost a lot of money and hiring more workers to just lower the threshold would really not be that much more expensive than this. Why don't we just do that? You know, the thing that we said we should have done in the first place. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I, I guess as like an in-between thing, because I, I don't actually know how much the additional pay is supposed to be. But I imagine that, you know, if you get to the point where you're like, yeah, you pay me my regular wage. And then if my class is too big, it's 10 grand a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. You get up to that point. Because, yeah, like when they were having these negotiations, like district officials claim that if they put hard caps in on class sizes, it would require hiring 500 additional teachers, which I'll okay. just take a break here and be like, Okay, sounds like you should hire 500 additional teachers. But, Go for it. And then they're like, "Well, now it would cost 65 million dollars and we can't we can't afford that." And so instead, we'll pay you, you know, a bonus on top of this for having to teach a, a class of 35 kids instead of the like the thre- agreed threshold of 25. That's so absolutely wild. So, uh they did agree uh the district did agree to a union proposal to form class size committees at individual schools made up of teachers, administrators, and parents to discuss ways to address class size issues. And I would assume largely be used partially as like a vehicle to push for, you know, mm-hmm. in the future, putting hard caps on class sizes and just, you know, building more facilities, hiring more teachers, et cetera. Interesting. I like that they're including the parents in those mm-hmm. committees as well, because I think in almost every case that is going to weight the the groups at play two to one against the administration in usually terms of yeah. making sure that something gets done here yeah and so classes resumed on monday uh while the union's four thousand teachers reviewed the agreement and voted on whether to ratify it and uh, the teachers seemed quite happy with the deal because workers voted to approve the new contract by nearly 95 percent and you know getting into the whole complaints from the district about poverty like and looking at you know one way to judge the deal is the fact that there's already officials complaining about how expensive it is in the press uh like the oregonian reported that school district officials are already like hey we're gonna have to find a hundred million dollars in funding cuts to pay for it but i will say to their credit at least some of the school board members correctly pointed the blame for the funding deficit not at the union which would be stupid but at the oregon state government which is correct and so board member andrew scott told oregon public broadcasting quote we got a contract that we cannot afford we cannot afford it because the governor and legislature have failed to adequately fund education in oregon full stop end quote which I was honestly pleasantly surprised to see this because, you know, we've covered a lot of teacher strikes that have ended with a lot of acrimony between Mm -hmm. the school board and the union and board members blaming the teachers for being greedy and shit like that. But here they're just like, no, it's like this is really expensive because it's expensive to teach kids. And the legislature should have fucking recognized that and actually devoted the right amount of money to it, which is like, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 
I, I would still like the uh, the board members to stop whining and crying so much about paying the teachers, but to point <laughs> the blame in the correct direction is an amazing step, frankly. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, the point you mentioned about parents, uh, you know, according to the reporting that I saw, like parents did largely support the strike. Mm-hmm with many joining picket lines and writing to school board members and district officials to encourage them to agree to the teachers' proposals. Uh, unsurprisingly, pressure from parents did increase as the strike went into its third week as more and more folks were like, we can't be having our kids home this long. You guys got to agree to the teachers' demands. <laughs> so, And then uh, in a statement, uh, we did hear from Portland Association of Teachers President uh, Angela Bonilla, who said, quote, this contract is a watershed moment for Portland students, families, and educators. Educators walk picket lines alongside families, students, and allies, and because of that, our schools are getting the added investment they need, end quote. Hell yeah. I mean, it's what we talk about a lot. Heck, bringing in the community is so important mm-hmm. in, in almost any labor struggle, really, because the workplaces are such a fixture in the community. But when it's schools, it's brought to such a heightened level like that mm-hmm. level of community support really is absolutely make or break um yeah, and speaking of somebody who i'd like to see broken let's talk about everybody's <laughs> favorite asshat elon musk <laughs> following right. up it's cyber uh, truck with, week everybody it's cyber truck week you're everybody's favorite vehicle if you need a car that can withstand 1930s style gang drive-bys but not a front-end collision. <laughs> no, not a front-end collision. That thing is going up in a ball of flame. Front-end collision, that's a Michael Bay movie. That's Getting right. shot at from the side, that's a Scorsese film. <laughs> so <laughs> it's director week on Work Stoppage, everybody. Right. Um, so a few weeks ago, we discussed the major strike launched against Tesla by workers in Sweden. And after about 50, 150 mechanics went on strike over Tesla's refusal to sign a collective bargaining agreement, the rest of Sweden's powerful labor movement came to their aid. Custodial staff won't clean Tesla showrooms. Dock workers won't unload Tesla's cargo. And postal workers refuse to deliver their mail. Which With I nearly all Swedish workers unionized, the state has been unable to ban sympathy strikes, and this effort has demonstrated their real power. Uh, Sweden, not perfect, but <laughs> union density, highly impressive. Yes. <laughs> uh, and this week, however, Elon decided to keep trying to fight these Swedish working classes, filing a lawsuit against the Swedish Postal Service over striking workers' refusal to deliver license plates. He claimed that the strike, quote unquote, constitutes an unlawful discriminatory attack directed at Tesla. He has demanded the state directly provide license plates to the company if the workers refuse and pay him $100,000 for his trouble. I don't think you understand how this works, Elon. You don't do this stuff. The state does this stuff. (laughs) Well, I just love how it's like, this strike is a discriminatory attack against Tesla. I'm like, well, isn't your refusal to sign a collective bargaining agreement with the workers a discriminatory attack on them? (laughs) You are literally in violation of Swedish labor law. (laughs) I don't know how to be more clear about this, dude. You don't get to countersue. You don't get to steal a bunch of shit from a hardware store, and then when they are like, hey, you stole our shit, you're like, I'm accusing you of libel and slander. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And, you know, I I, I, I like that Sweden's uh, labor movement has just basically called them out for that because, we, mm-hmm. you know, we, we heard from, uh, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, Fack for Bundet. ST close enough. <laughs> uh, <S-a-tay> or yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's Sweden's Union of Civil Servants 
who noted that the lawsuit basically proves exactly why workers went on strike in the first place, that Tesla and Musk specifically think they are above the law and more important than the entire Swedish labor system. Uh, going to court over the strike, quote, shows that they do not accept the rules that prevail, end quote, said Asa Erba Stenhammer of the ST. Nailed it, Stenhammer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely correct. I mean, it's so weird that of all of the places for Elon to try this, he maybe like picked the worst possible battle, the most rules lawyery country with the highest union density that you could imagine who just well, are not going to take his shit. And it's also, it's like, it's it, it, the, the whole thing. I don't, I mean, it's, I get it because it's uh, his ideology, but it's like mm-hmm. from a, from a realistic perspective, it's like allowing a union in Sweden where everyone is unionized is not going to suddenly mean that that's going to make every Tesla worker in the U S unionized as much as I wish that that was true. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but I mean, if like, that was true, then Sweden would stop doing social democracy. Well, that's right. why they have it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. And so, uh, on Tuesday, a court, uh, uh, blocked an attempt to issue a temporary restraining order to force the postal service to provide the license plates to Tesla as reported by Bloomberg. The court said that does not agree with Tesla's claim that the license plate stop is of such a magnitude as to warrant the issuing of a snap temporary injunction. And the postal service has argued that the right to strike is a more basic right in Sweden's constitution than any argument made by Tesla. Again, not a big fan of the Swedish constitution, but I'm pretty sure all of that is exactly correct. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, we'll see how this continues to play out uh, as this battle drags on. But I did also want to mention just one other piece of, of labor news. So we, you know, to contrast the situation in the U.S., uh, where we have our extremely pro-capital system of labor laws compared to there, we, of course, don't have sympathy strikes, at least not legal ones here in the U.S. They're banned by actually multiple pieces of legislation, Taft-Hartley um, and a few others. Uh, but uh, we saw yet another example of how fucked our labor law system is this week, where on Monday, November 27th, a regional director of the NLRB in, uh, the, in New York dismissed a case filed by workers who were fired for unionizing at a Buffalo Tesla facility. The regional NLRB director found that the company broke the law by banning workers from making audio recordings, but that its firing of dozens of workers the day after they announced a union drive was not illegal retaliation somehow. (laughs) And so uh, Workers United, though, did say that they will appeal the decision and regional organizing director and, uh, you know, uh, early leader of the Starbucks Workers United movement, Jazz Brizak, said, quote, I think when the general counsel's office digs into the case, then they'll see that it's a clear pattern of retaliation against a unionizing group of workers and clearly a violation of labor law, end quote. Hell yeah. Always a banger, Jazz. Come on the Mm -hmm. show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we actually should do that at some point. But anyways, uh, (laughs) but one and one last piece of Tesla news, that same facility, the Buffalo Gigafactory, uh, there was another recent story that came out that in addition to being a hive of union busting, is also a hive of bed bugs. Uh, there was a, this was uh, reported by WKBW7 News, uh, where workers at the Buffalo Gigafactory told them that the whole factory is infested with the bugs. And OSHA confirmed to their reporters that it's received numerous complaints from workers about the bed bugs' presence at the facility. One worker saying, quote, it makes me feel like they're treating people in general as not human, end quote. 
Well, one, Elon Musk has, in so many words, told us all that he views workers as not human. He wants he he thinks of you already as robots, and he wants to literally turn you into robots because he has a broken ass brain. But also, bedbugs is like pest issues are something we talk about on this show, and they can be a really severe problem. But bedbugs in particular are like the worst case scenario for a pest issue because anyone who works in that facility. Now your whole neighborhood has bed bugs, mm-hmm. and these facilities are large enough that you could theoretically give bed bugs to an entire like greater metropolitan area, right? By like doing the whole this. Buffalo area, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, I mean, we'll get to this in another story, but hopefully, we're able to see uh, some improvements in union density regarding Tesla mm-hmm. uh, in the near future, like they have in Sweden, so that you know we can actually be able to fight against these awful situations that these workers are facing. But um, to transition to our next story, this is sort of a follow-up, although just a very long-term one, you know, because obviously one of the, probably one of the longest-running stories that we've ever covered on this show has been the dispute between the RMT union in the UK and the combination of the right-wing Tory government and the uh, various private rail operators in, mm. uh, in Britain primarily. Well, and also, just as a side note, I would argue that when, once you're a Marxist, almost every story is a follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I guess when you view things dialectically, yeah, everything is. <laughs> <Yeah>. But uh, I, So this week, we did finally see, actually, an end to this round of mm-hmm. the dispute between the RMT and the, the, the rail operators, where the RMT agreed this week to a new contract ending their dispute with some key wins uh, achieved in their epic 18-month struggle. And so as we discussed earlier this year, I think it was like a month or so ago, uh, pressure from the strike campaign combined with public outrage earlier this year killed attempts by the Tories and the rail operators to shut down manned ticket counters all across the country and replace them with kiosks. And so this saved thousands of jobs and secured an agreement for no layoffs Uh, with the rail operators through the end of 24. And those were key points of contention that the union had fought for tooth and nail over the last year and a half. And so Mm -hmm. uh, those were really the big things, the two biggest things they were fighting for is to save all those jobs. Uh, And so in addition to the job security wins, the deal does include a backdated pay raise back to the beginning of the industrial action back in the like uh, mid middle of 2022. (laughs) Um, which will result in like a 2,000 pound or about $2,500 lump sum payment for all rail workers by year's end. So it's a nice little Christmas bonus. Uh, And the RMT's 20,000 members voted overwhelmingly in favor of the new contract. Now, unfortunately, the raises in the contract were not as high as workers were initially fighting for, especially in light of the massive cost of living crisis gripping the UK and most of the planet uh, in wake of massive capitalist price gouging following the worst days of the pandemic. But the primary goal, again, of this whole strike campaign was really saving thousands of jobs, making sure that there were not going to be compulsory layoffs and that, and that the, the rail network was not going to get less safe and less accessible by firing tons of maintenance workers and closing all these uh, per- manned kiosks. Right. Uh, the other thing, though, that workers have pointed out is that, you know, while the raises were not necessarily as high as they might have wanted, they're not actually going to have to wait that long to restart wage negotiations because since this dispute dragged on so long and is 
this is a dispute from 2022. And so the next round of negotiations is going to be starting up again in less than six months. So securing this job security allows them to focus in just a few months on securing those and then adding on top of it more uh, wage increases. Well, and in this way, like, didn't the rail operators completely play themselves? Because, like, if they had just agreed and, and backed off earlier, then there would have been a much bigger amount of time to demobilize yes. in between. <laughs> but if there's only six months, it's actually quite easy to finish a major dispute and then say, look, the next dispute is in six months. Why don't we all just stay in real close touch and keep talking about this? Because it's like, that's what, two summer breaks? That is yeah, not well, a long time. <laughs> and it's not like, and, and, and with this not being like a continuous strike, it was a right. series of targeted rolling strikes. It's not as if the workers have been out there exhausted for a year and a half on the line. It's right. just been these targeted, you know, one day, two day, three day, one week type of strikes. So they're, they're, they haven't like, you know, emptied their workers' savings and, and mm -hmm. all these other things. So, you know, there's the, the pros and cons of that kind of a strategy. But one of the things that it does leave you with is that at the end of even a very, very long dispute, it's not as if the workers have completely exhausted their ability to struggle. Right. It's like it, it almost is a parallel to the stand-up strike in some ways. In, in some that ways. It's, in some ways, in that it's like a form of asymmetrical attack. Mm -hmm. You're saying like, look, if we just dive in there headfirst, all of our guys in a big line marching in, we're going to get decimated. But if we, you know, uh, what do you call it? When you run and try to hit the cavalry real hard and then run <laughs> you away. You try and there's outflank a, them? Yeah. Well, it's outflanking, but there's a special thing you can, you harry the cavalry, oh, I believe. Sure. <laughs> um, that's essentially what they're doing here, where they're like, what's a weak point? What's an important week where an important group of workers cannot be working? Mm -hmm. And make sure that every time we expend resources, we're expending them as effectively as possible. Yeah. And so... Uh, so yeah, I mean, this is uh, marks a, a, an end to a, the, a very long struggle, but really sets up the next phase of the battle. And and it and that understandably, like it just goes with that's what trade unionism under capitalism is. Like every contract mm -hmm. you agree to is a temporary truce. It's not right. like you never actually permanently solve the the contradiction there without a revolution. But so in a statement, RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch said, quote, this campaign shows that sustained strike action and unity gets results and our members should be proud of the role they have played in securing this deal. Our members have spoken in huge numbers to accept this offer, and I want to congratulate them on their steadfastness in this long industrial campaign. We'll be negotiating further with the train operators over reforms they want to see. And we will never shy away from vigorously defending our members' terms and conditions now or in the future, end quote. Hell yeah. I mean, uh, he's been so consistent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's hard for me to heap more praise on him at this point because it's like, that's what I expect from you, Mick. <laughs> Nailed it, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, and the other thing, too, is they're, you know, because part of the difficulty here for them is that they're fighting this as a, obviously partially a political battle since the government mm -hmm. in the UK is so intertwined with this. And it's like, I mean, yeah, their, their, their other party is literally called labor. <laughs> well, but that's but what I was going to say is like the th part of the thing that I think, you know, made this difficult and made it 18 months long is that there's no 
even though there is a Labour Party, there isn't actually a credible opposition because right. under Starmer, just rehashing Blairism, they're the Labour's just the Democrats. So right. like they they can put all the political pressure that they did and managed and succeeded in in stopping shutting down those ticket kiosks, which I think is all the more impressive given the fact that they had no political ally on this because under Starmer, Labour's like, yeah, we'll happily privatize all this shit and and like slash all these jobs. We'll just do it five percent not as awful as the Tories, and then you have to vote for us. Well, it's kind of interesting because in a way, didn't... And this feels weird to say because I don't know if it's totally correct, but in a sense, didn't Labor kind of do them a favor by abandoning them? Because now that they've won, it demonstrates where the political power actually comes I, from. I, I, th- that's hard to... I, think, I, I don't think we can judge that yet. I think we're right. going to have to see how things play out. But a possibility. Um. <laughs> I, I guess, but I don't... It's hard for me to ever could envision... Like, I did, it just seems like a bit of an accelerationist take. Because it's just well, like, oh, I'm so glad that Starmer's so awful because he shows that Labor's not a real alternative, which I get, but, like, on the other hand, he is also extremely awful. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, we'll also have to see how the reception is in the British public down the road, which is the kind of thing right. that always makes yes. this difference. Because if if they just start saying, like, Labor's going to try to take credit for this if they really are. The oh, Democrats. yeah. Absolutely. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be messy. But anyway, um, speaking of messy, let's talk about the United States' largest food producer, Legoland. So <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> we eat plastic in this country is what oh, I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Took but, me a minute. <laughs> So Lego is one of the most recognizable brands in the world, and it has an enormous monopoly on the plastic brick toy market, which you wouldn't think would be as big as it is. Just ask Brian Quimby. But um, (laughs) they have launched into massive profits and global status because of this monopoly that they hold. And despite their kid-friendly image and massive profits, even Lego can't resist union busting. And wait, aren't they a Swedish company? Uh, No, I think they're Danish. Danish, are they? Oh, interesting. So a new so. report this week from Michael Sinato, who consistently does good work at The Guardian, uh, exposes yeah, how once again, no matter how nice a company may seem, they're all still capitalists with the same imperative to pay workers as little as possible. Ride technicians at Legoland who maintain and repair the rides that thousands of visitors enjoy every year and who keep them safe by doing so filed to join the IAM back in September. That's the International Association of Machinists? Yes. Yes. Um, immediately Lego brought in union busters from our nemesis, Littler Mendelssohn, and began holding one-on-ones to pressure workers. So, I mean, textbook. The -hmm. technicians in Legoland's ride engineering department told The Guardian that they are the lowest paid ride technicians amongst the various amusement parks in the area. Workers also face a system of arbitrary favoritism to determine who gets raises and promotions. William Corona, who is organizer with IAM Lodge 947, said, quote, Some of these ride technicians are getting zero raises, and it's based on who you know and how well you are with the supervisors, end quote. And, and like, <laughs> look, you shouldn't treat workers like that regardless of what their position is. But, like, it's one thing to do that to, say, like, the people who take the tickets. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to do that to the people keeping your roller coasters from killing people. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't do it to anybody. And frankly, the ticket-taking people and the, the ride-engineered people should be able to organize together and be in the same, you know, bargaining mm-hmm. unit. But this whole idea of, like, yeah, we're going to skimp out on the people who keep our <laughs> park from killing people 
it seems like a very bad business decision. <laughs> yeah, like imagine if your country had a problem with an interdimensional portal that kept spitting out <laughs> demons. And you were like, look, we got to make some hard cuts. And we're going to have to cut the funding for the demon containment program. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't think that's where you should start. You probably shouldn't no. be cutting anything, but you definitely shouldn't be cutting that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, union busters hired by Lego have just run the standard playbook uh, attacking the union as an outside third party, claiming the union just wants to control the workers and subtly threatening workers if they unionize. One anonymous worker told The Guardian, quote, they emphasize that there's a big possibility the workplace might not get better, that Legoland could take things away, that our benefits will go down without directly saying that, end quote. To which I have to say, which part of that is Legoland not already doing? <laughs> well, right. They're just like, oh, things might not get better. It, you, you, you don't give people raises. They're already not getting better. Yeah. And their benefits <laughs> are probably disappearing. And like, what, yeah. everything's disappearing in relation to inflation and the increasing cost of medical care. And like, it just, it's... it's it's bo- it's so boilerplate. It's I feel like we almost have to go back and do like why do why are unions important one oh one right <laughs> to explain the struggle yeah um and so this report also demonstrates how hollow claims of support for unions or neutrality um are from capitalist companies Lego's written quote responsible business principles <laughs> state quote. Workers have the right to form or join trade unions and take part in union activities, select their own representatives, and to bargain collectively without interference, obstruction, influence, or sanctions from employers, end quote. Yet despite this policy, they hired Littler Mendelssohn to interfere and influence workers to vote against a union. Which is just like, this is that whole thing that should just be illegal, right? Like, we should just reword (laughs) the NLRA or otherwise update it so that it's obvious that you can't hire firms like Littler Mendelssohn, full stop. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, all of the all the union avoidance consultants, all that shit should be just banned. Like it is in most countries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so these workers are currently awaiting an NLRB ruling on their bargaining unit's eligibility. This also emphasized another way the intentionally toothless and underfunded nature of the NLRB plays into how poor the legal environment is for workers. These delays for hearings and rulings allow companies more time to union bust while workers wait for the NLRB. And like, yeah, that's that's the point of delay tactics is that they're not just delaying. They're also figuring out ways to undermine you the entire intervening time. And so as far as they can kick the can down the road, they're more than happy to. Yeah. So. uh, So that story kind of sucks. Uh, fuck off, Lego. Uh, stop union busting. Um, but. Unfortunately, I have to transition into a even worse story because, you know, we've talked about how ineffective the NLRB often is intentionally by the way that it was set up, not not like due to the individuals that make up the actual workers there. Uh, well, now we have to go to one of the other agencies that uh, also doesn't do what its claim, what what its ostensible purpose is, mm-hmm. uh, which is OSHA. Uh, with one of the the topics that we have talked about over and over again on the show, the fact that OSHA exists to convince workers that there is a safely regulated environment for their job when there in fact is not, and really just provide legal cover for businesses to continue to operate unsafe conditions. And so that has played into so many of the like uh, 
most aggravating and rage-inducing stories that we've talked about on this show. And we've got another one that fits that same pattern, uh, which is Amazon killing people, uh, which unfortunately has become one of those things that is just kind of a perennial thing that comes up on this show. So uh, there was a report this week uh, in the Washington Post that really unfortunately brings us to a new low for the value of human life in this country because uh, this story uh, this, this story just came out this week, but it's about a case that happened back in May where a worker, uh, Case Grusbeck, who is an Amazon worker in Fort Wayne, Indiana, was killed when he was struck and trapped by moving machinery. Uh, he was only 20 years old uh, when he was killed. And so this happened back in May, and after a several-month-long investigation, the Indiana Department of Labor uh, which has its own OSHA that controls like this sort of regulation instead of using the federal board. Uh, they finally issued a fine against Amazon for failing to keep the warehouse, quote, free from recognized hazards that were causing or likely to cause death, end quote. Uh, to translate that from failing to provide a safe, non-deadly workplace. Yeah, it's uh, also like a weird double negative, failing to keep it free from recognized hazards. You killed him. It's homicide. <laughs> yeah, and and so for all of that, for that regulate with that investigation, which again found Amazon in violation of the law in a way that led to their workers' death, they were fined seven thousand dollars. I just don't even. That's like what? twenty bucks to a corporation. Yeah, well, that like that mine is what said seven thousand mines will be zero. Amazon yeah. brought in ten billion dollars in on the books profits last year. Uh, 7,000 is nothing, uh, but $7,000 is the maximum allowable fine by Indiana law, uh, which really ultimately means that Indiana has defi legally defined the value of the life of a worker as being $7,000. Um, That's which is disgraceful. I, I don't even, I mean, like, that would make sense in like 1925. <laughs> or something in terms of dollars. Oh, yeah, I mean, and I, I like, I don't even like talking about this sort of shit because it's like e debating how uh, the monetary value of a human life, like, yeah, you, you like quibbling, and and, and, I, and I'm not. This isn't. It's not to blame people for doing it because it's like, yes, it, it, and that's the framing I chose to go with here. It's how low that they chose to value a human life. It's not as if you know the fine was ten million dollars that would make the loss of this uh, this young man like any better. Mm -hmm. But the point about this is is that you know when you're going to be operating under capitalism you have a privately operated company so it's not a state operated thing where you can just have you know criminal penalties for this sort of thing you either have again you either charge the company and their board criminally as it should be done or you try the same way that we do everything in this fucking country use price signals to to motivate people and so this being the idea being okay you have a fine and the fine will deter them well but see, even setting it at seven thousand dollars a hundred and fifty years ago would not have been a deterrent That's to true. any company, much less in twenty twenty three to one of the richest companies on earth. And like that's not even the full depths of how awful the legal system in Indiana for workers is because they ban families from suing companies for wrongful death in cases that are investigated by the Department of Labor like this. They're like, nope, that's the state's job, and yep, we did it, we did our investigation, and we fined them $7,000, so you can't sue them. Don't 
but the family still needs recompense. <laughs> oh well, no, but that's fine. No, that's they get some. The the maximum the family can receive through workers' comp claims for wrongful death, which of course they just assume, they just said by their investigation it was a wrongful death, which it obviously was anyway. That is ten years of two thirds of cases former wages. So basically, you know, considering how Amazon's lows Amazon's wages are, probably $15 an hour, which you work that out to a full year is $30,000, two-thirds of that $20,000. So that's $200,000 total. Um, and how that's, do I send a whole state government to jail? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. That's the, that was basically my reaction reading this because, like, like this is case is bad enough, but it's – it exemplifies the just moral bankruptcy of, of our whole system. Like Indiana, apparently in a highly uh, specific way, but also just broadly more like across the country. Cause uh, like OSHA has higher fines. They can find people like $150,000, I think, but even that's too low. <laughs> it's not as insultingly low as 7,000, but it's still not a deterrent for companies this large. But the thing, the other thing, though, that I just wanted to bring up, because, like, uh, uh, Michael Sonato, also, who's the reporter for The Guardian, he, uh, I, I, he pointed out in response to this case that uh, this is par for the course for the Indiana Department of Labor, which, by the way, could simply choose, the, the state government could simply choose, like most state governments, to align their policies on fines with the federal level. They have explicitly chosen not to do that because mm -hmm. they... Again, they prioritize the profits of companies and the feelings of the ruling class over the lives of workers. And this same organization, the Indiana Department of Labor, and this is what the story that Michael Sonato was linking to, uh, previously manipulated a, a wrongful death case against Amazon in order to curry favor with the company. Uh, because in 2017, when four serious safety violations led to the death of another worker in Indiana, this time at a facility in Plainfield, Amazon was fined by the investigating officer who reviewed the case. Uh, uh, the maximum fine for each of those four safety violations for a mere $28,000 total. I mean, and, and to point out, this worker was killed by a forklift. And replacing that forklift was almost certainly a larger expense to Amazon than these fines. But Damn, it, it's, it's, it almost makes me... It has vibes of Amazon operating like the military a little yeah. bit, where they're like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, the soldier cost X amount, but what we're really worried about is the thing that killed him. We need to get that thing back online right away. Well, right, and like that would be bad enough that you're only finding a company who killed a worker with a faulty forklift and, and, and lack of training for how mm -hmm. to use the equipment less than $30,000. But there, two years after this incident, uh, there was a bombshell investigation by uh, Reveal, which is an outfit from the Center for Investigative Reporting, which found that the Department of the Indiana Department of Labor dropped the fines against Amazon, charging them nothing, uh, at the direction of Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb, who was attempting to convince Amazon to establish their HQ2 in Indiana. And so... Safety inspector John Stallone, who reviewed the case, went to the press after seeing the corruption within the agency. He recorded conversations with Indiana OSHA director Julie Alexander, where she explained that in pursuit of investment from Amazon, they would be dropping the fines for the wrongful death, saying, quote, I hope you don't take it personally if we have to manipulate your citations, end quote. What the flying fuck? And that's like straight up and down corruption, textbook mm -hmm. definition. But also, in what universe is dropping a $28,000 fine going to make any fucking difference to Amazon mm -hmm. in your little 
please come to Indiana campaign. What kind of nonsense math are you working with? Well, in adding insult to injury there, she even tried to create the implication that the worker who was killed was on drugs and was therefore at fault for his own death. When Stallone, the investigator, refused to back off Amazon, he was forced to resign. And, Mm. you know, Holcomb and Alexander have not been charged with corruption for this, despite the fact that, again, there are literally audio recordings of Mm -hmm. them saying they were going to do this. Now, Holcomb has a bit of insulation because the recording is the OSHA director. But, like, that is, like, one of the clearest cut forms of corruption, even in our society that has legalized so much corruption. And yet, nothing. Well, and, like... What's crazy about this is this guy, John Stallone, wasn't even like trying to change OSHA from the inside or anything. He was literally trying to do his actual job normally. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing that ran him afoul of these fucking lunatics. I don't. This one is maddening. Yeah, no, this story made me really, really mad. Um, like, because, you know, the family of Case Grusbeck, the family of the, the worker who was killed in, in 2017, and all the other workers who have been murdered at Amazon, uh, they deserve better than this. Like, those, the workers who were killed deserve better than this. And I don't, I don't have, like, a silver lining in this story that, like, you know, suddenly the, 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 the Department of Labor, because they've been exposed, is going to, like, oh, they're going to send these people to jail and they're going to change all of the rules. I mean, that's not going to happen. Like, the government, mm. we know how state governments and, and, and the federal government in this country work. So, well, and especially Indiana. I mean, that's where we got Mike Pence from. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, but so like I I guess just to kind of transition into our next story, the 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 thing that I really just want to emphasize with this is that like OSHA is not gonna solve this problem. State governments are not gonna solve this problem, not under capitalism, not with the two capitalist parties we have now. The only way we're gonna solve this problem is the only way we've ever made workplaces safer in this country, which is through union organizing. And it's mm-hmm. why like the campaign by the Teamsters to organize at Amazon, by the campaign by any major union to organize at Amazon is so important and really has to be like one of the top priorities for the labor movement. And, and, and this is like Amazon is the big one because they're like one of the biggest companies in the country. But it's like this is this is why union organizing is like so important, not only from, you know, a stepping stone to revolution, not only from like, you know, the reforms that you can get for workers by getting higher wages and, and, and more time to see your family, which are all very important, incredibly vital issues, but also just to literally save lives to to have more workers around longer so that people aren't killed when they're 20 because the company just said that eh, doing safety training, it would be fucking that'd be too expensive. We can always just get away with uh you know, letting workers die. And so it's just like, <laughs> I just think it underlines, you know, that like the union organizing is not just something that we uh, encourage for like ideological reasons. Like it's literally a life or death issue for, for so many people. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, talking about big ones in the uh, United States labor movement, transitioning going from, out. Going from our most angry story to our actually most hopeful story. Yeah. Well, I mean, the UAW has just been providing a lot of of fodder for the old optimism machine recently. And um, when the UAW announced their victory in the stand-up strike a few weeks ago, Sean Fain made it crystal clear that the union had no intentions of resting on their laurels and waiting for workers to come to them. In announcing their contract expiration date of April 30th, 2028, the UAW president laid out the plans 
laid out their plans to be negotiating not just with the big three, but the big four, five, six, or even more. Because uh, as you may know, there's actually a shocking number of auto manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Organizing unorganized auto workers has been set as a critical goal to return the UAW to being a true industrial union. And this week, the union officially launched that fight. So we saw on November Wednesday, November 29th, the UAW officially announced their intentions to organize every non-union auto plant in the country inviting thousands of workers to join them and win the same massive gains they won in the stand-up strike. In their campaign launch video, President Fain said that thousands of workers at Toyota, Tesla, Honda, and other non-union automakers have already reached out for help in unionizing their shops. This organizing push, dubbed Stand Up 2.0... I love that. It's so stupid, <laughs> but it's exactly what we need right now. <laughs> Sets a bold target of adding 150,000 auto workers across 13 different automakers. The full list includes BMW, Honda, Hyundai, Lucid. What the fuck is Lucid? Mazda. <laughs> yeah, that Lucid's, I'll, I'll explain who Lucid is, but yeah, finish the list. <laughs> Mazda, Mercedes, Nissan, Rivian, Subaru, Tesla, Toyota, Volkswagen, and Volvo. Yeah, so Lucid is that one was surprised me when I saw the list. Yeah, because uh, I think that the, I got the list from like a, a Bloomberg piece that was reporting it, and I had to look them up. They're they're a small EV maker in uh, California, so it's a little bit like R- Rivian, but Rivian actually has like substantial deliveries. I think so far. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. it's mostly just I, I think they're on the list, probably less because they were targeted by the UAW and more because the workers at Lucid probably reached organized out. their own started have started the organizing job themselves because that's one of the things you know we're going to get into mm-hmm. is that this strategy for this organizing drive is really really more rank and file led than I think we have seen from a lot of major unions in the past yeah I think people get the idea that with something like this what they're saying is we are going to launch organizing campaigns in a bunch of shops and I think it's more like we're going to allocate a bunch of resources to the organizing campaigns we've already been made aware of that right. are already in motion in many cases. Right. So um, in the wake of the historic wins in the strike against the big three, organizing committees, as we said, have already sprung mm-hmm. up at multiple companies. And as reported by Labor Notes, the organizing committee at Rivian in Bloomington, Illinois, have already reached out to over 1,000 workers on ways that things could be better at their factory. The UAW hopes to turn the momentum from their victorious strike into a massive wave of new union shops across the country. The union plans to go public with their drive once a plant reaches 30% of the workforce signed up, ramp up organizing efforts with a major community rally at 50%, and demand voluntary recognition or file with 70%, the rule of thumb threshold to win an election. Yeah. And so like getting into some of this, like, you know, the labor theory strategy perspective Mm -hmm. here, I think this is really encouraging, like not only because, you know, look, uh, coming off the momentum from one of the the most historic strike wins in our lifetime, the first time ever the big three have been struck all at the same time by the UAW, winning back COLA, winning back all those concessions made in the wake of 2008, and not just being like, look, we did it, all right, now everyone come come beg to be part of the UAW, but instead being like, look, we see workers are being inspired by this, and you know, trying to learn from some of the past efforts that the UAW made under the admin caucus mm-hmm. to try and organize shops in the South that didn't work out and, and being like, okay, 
what are some of the things that went wrong with those campaigns? And what are some of the things that we've seen other unions more recently doing right? And I think it really reflects, you know, the rank and file led approach of the UAW Members United slate that swept Fane into power about a year ago, because rather than making a single gigantic top down staff led campaign focusing on one major plant or maybe two or three, putting all the union's eggs into one basket, where if it doesn't work out, that's an enormous like morale loss uh, to your effort. The campaign instead is being is being more distributed and relying a lot more on workers to lead their own campaigns mm-hmm. and then be boosted by the resources and assistance of the union. And all, of course, under the umbrella of the broader, you know, UAW master contract and everything like that, which to me, I mean, this approach really, it just reminds me so much of the approach used by Workers United at Starbucks, basically aiming to leverage the creative power of the workers who know their workplace better than anybody else, even a really experienced organizer. And so, you know, worker organizers, non-union plants who spoke with Labor Notes emphasize that while the companies that they work at have been trying to hold off uh, the organizing drive by raising wages, many of the workers are just as fed up about the lack of respect from management and their total lack of job security. And that's something, I mean, that's something that's just, I think in general, you know, the more strikes you read about, the more, whether it's like historical ones or even more recent ones, like, you know, economic motivations are a key. They're always at the core of any struggle. But the thing that moves a lot of people from like, yeah, I don't like that I'm not paid enough and I'm not paying the bills to, but like, I still don't want to lose this job to like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's, we, we need to make this place better. That, that thing that pushes a lot of people over the edge is that lack of respect is feeling like you're treated as being disposable in as much in addition to, you know, the material issues. And so, uh, I, I, we have a few examples like from workers who talk with labor notes, uh, Jeff Allen, a worker at Toyota's massive Georgetown, Kentucky plant said, quote, we are tired of going backwards while our company continues to move forward. We want security of having a contract to protect our total compensation for, for now and our future, end quote. And, uh, Hyundai worker, Gilbert Brooks said that, uh, Hyundai routinely forces people to do jobs meant for two. I mean, where else have we seen that? Uh, And uses their in-house clinic to rush injured workers back to the job, evading OSHA requirements. Hey, look, it's Amazon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And so Gilbert said, quote, everything needs to change from the safety inside the plant to the treatment of the people that are doing the work that makes the company run, end quote. And uh, Jeremy Kimball, one last uh, other example, a longtime veteran worker at Mercedes-Benz in Alabama, was part, actually, of two failed attempts in the past to unionize the plant with the UAW, but says that the situation now is totally different. Quote, in the past when we ran campaigns, I would tell people, we have to make a marginal argument that the big three are getting a little more money, they get pensions, and a little more benefits. When you put it on paper, it was a marginal argument and had a lot of people would say, well, we're down here in Alabama, we're right to work, and that's just to be expected. Now the difference has got so much greater since the big three has increased its formula on profit sharing and got some really nice raises, end quote. That is such a fucking key point, too. Like, it's so hard to overstate how big this win at the big three is for not just, like setting the standard for other workers to get uh to get better pay and benefits and conditions but also to make it seem possible 
to them and, right. and to, to make the gap on paper look big enough to say, okay, you know, Hyundai, Nissan, whatever, they may have given you some improvements in the wake of this contract, but the contract to the big three were so big and such big improvements that they're, they're never going to give you enough of that to make the difference marginal again. So that argument just like totally falls apart. And I think it's like a reflection of how this administration compared to the admin caucus previously must have been sitting around for so long thinking like, wow, this union has so many fucking resources and we mm -hmm. just straight up don't use most of them. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so like this could be really huge. This even if this organizing drive, because again, I don't think we're necessarily expecting that all 13 of those companies are going right. to be uh you know unionized in the next 5 years. But oh, even I'm if ready this, for I'm ready for negotiations with the big 15. I think that's I know, great. right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I but even if it's partially successful, just unionizing a few major plants in the south, that would be a historic shift in, mm -hmm. for the labor movement uh that we really haven't seen in years. And so like as Sean Fain said in the video announcing the, the push stand up 2.0 quote, we've shown the world that this industry is harming workers and consumers to the benefit of company executives and the rich. And it's time that the working class did something about it. End quote. Oh, he's using good language in there too. I like the word choices quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to do a little bit of tonal whiplash, uh -oh. <laughs> here we go. Uh, there, there's, uh, you know, I mentioned that there's a lot of comparisons in the UAW strategy to what Starbucks workers have been doing. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately we did get some more news this week about some more bullshit that Starbucks has been doing, not only union busting against its workers here in the U S uh, but the company has also made itself a face of major union busting and worker abuse ab uh, abroad uh, because there was a recent investigation from Reporter Brazil, which has exposed that the company's supply chain is also riddled with labor violations, including conditions akin to modern slavery. So uh, this investigation found that numerous farms which supply Starbucks with coffee in the uh, Minas Gerais, I'm not uh, sure. Minas Gerais, probably? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Something like that. But uh, so the region, there's a lot of coffee farms in the region that supply Starbucks and that they have recently found that many of them are operated in flagrant violation of Brazilian labor law. They found that uh, over the last year, at least 159 workers have been rescued from slavery-like conditions on these farms. And to add insult to injury and to kind of go along with the theme from some of our earlier stories, many of these same farms keeping workers in these horrific conditions have been given the cafe practices seal standing for coffee and farmer equity. And this certification claims to show consumers that the coffee they buy is produced in fair conditions. Uh, and I mean, Brazil coffee is one of those industries like chocolate where it's mm -hmm. like just shockingly full of slave labor conditions from top to bottom pretty much. And so like, even when I was working at Starbucks as like a weirdly optimistic lib, I remember looking at like the cafe practices or the fair trade certifications and being like, I'm pretty sure these are nonsense actually. Well, it turns out you were right. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and this is a, a big deal for Brazil because Brazil is the world's largest exporter mm -hmm. of coffee. And it is their, their fourth biggest export industry in, you know, a, a very large economy, the largest economy in, in Latin America, I think. Uh, it's either them or It's Mexico. neck and neck with Mexico, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so uh, 
the report documents a litany of cases of worker abuse. Again, they found like, you know, almost 160 workers in, in near slavery conditions. But and to describe some of those conditions, uh, at the Mesas farm in Campos Altos, uh, uh, 17 workers, including three teenagers, were rescued from slavery conditions following inspections by state agencies. Now, in Brazil, employing children under 18 for any kind of hard labor is expressly forbidden by Brazilian labor law. And yet, repeatedly, these uh, uh, inspectors who are, like in many countries, you know, trying to do their job but are very much underfunded and can't get around to every one of these job sites to necessarily monitor them all the time. Uh, and so in 2020, a study of conditions at coffee plantations found workers were paid an average of 41% below a living wage. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things that you know, compounds that is that coffee harvesting is extremely intense labor. Uh, to the point that one of the workers that uh, the reporter spoke to, a, a young uh, 24-year-old uh, man, said that he lost over 20 pounds in just the first month working, uh, picking coffee. Which, that's like, utterly deleterious to your health. Yeah, you that's never lose weight that fast. No, that's extremely, that, that is a sign of you, you are way overtaxing your body yeah and probably uh, i mean you could even still be eating enough if they're if you're doing enough work so that's like that's pretty damning yeah uh obviously like again like so many of these places just absolutely working these people like nearly to death mm -hmm. and uh several of these farms where the worst abuses were found are owned by one coffee baron uh guillerme uh de oliviera lemos um at his Cafe Arizona farm, inspectors found workers who were illegally forced to pay for all their own tools, including the bags they used to gather harvested coffee beans. Like, this is the same shit whenever we talk about, like, coal mining in the mm -hmm. U.S. back in, like, the 1880s. It's, like, that's the, like, ancient level of bullshit that this is. Yeah, I mean, but Brazil also does have a history of this. I think about Rosalind Carter's uh, great uncle, who was one of those Confederates who fled to Brazil because mm, Emperor yeah. Dom Pedro II, I think, was like, oh, you can't do slavery up there anymore? Come do slavery for me. Right, right. And yeah, and that's obviously has created a lot of echoes even since mm -hmm. the nominal end of slavery. And mm -hmm. Because like, in addition to having to pay for all their own equipment, workers had no access to rest areas, space for meals, and were not provided any toilet facilities, meaning they just had to, you know, basically relieve themselves in the coffee fields. Um, again, akin to conditions on many agricultural work sites in the U.S. Um, workers at the, the Cafe Arizona farm were not even provided with drinking water. Uh, and accommodations for the workers who had to travel hundreds of miles to work there were rundown shacks with no bedding. So, I mean, I, that slavery is conditions. Yeah, <laughs> that a good is description. Yeah. Uh, well, and like, that's the other thing at the top it, of the article. We're talking about this. We're saying slavery like conditions. And I'm trying to understand where the like is coming from, because this <laughs> yeah. is just this is not, the Venn diagram of this and slavery is damn near a circle. It, I think the big difference is like, well, there's there's no physical chains. That okay. that's like it. That's like the only difference. Yeah, uh, and it's like it's it's not legal to murder the workers if they right. leave. Doesn't mean they don't do it, but uh, it's not technically legal. But like, uh, you know, confronted with the revelations of systematic abuse of workers all across its Brazilian farms, 
Starbucks responded basically the same way they've responded to questions about their union busting in the U.S., uh, just lies and gaslighting. Uh, The company stated, quote, our records show no active labor complaints, litigation, or open grievances against Guillerme de Oliveira Lemos, end quote. (laughs) Okay, your records? What about the Brazilian government's records? (laughs) Yeah, but again, this is just one of those things. It's like if you're a monopoly com- corporation, mm-hmm. you just get so big. You're just like, whatever, we'll just lie. What are well, they going to do? And also, like, all of these, these like, watchdog groups and certification groups and everything that make sure that your coffee supposedly is made under, like, fair conditions, those were all created by corporations like Starbucks. Right, And if, exactly. they, if they didn't found it, once Starbucks became the biggest coffee uh, supplier in the world, they took over those organizations mm-hmm. and they run them the way the U.S. government runs South Korea. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, and it, I think the other thing too, though, that like this emphasizes is like the whack-a-mole nature of trying to secure yes. workers' rights within the capitalist system because like... It, you know, once a company is a big enough monopoly, it can dominate not only its industry, but it, its its power within the political sphere shields them from attempts by like piecemeal reforms by mm-hmm. workers in the same way that we saw like like Meta is now trying to sue to say that the FTC existing is illegal yeah. purely to keep them from like being banned from selling the personal information of children. Yeah. We've moved on from too big to fail to too big to assume any liability for anything at any time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's and so I also just wanted to, you know, one thing I will say though, even with our pessimism about reformism, Lula is, is relatively cool as, mm-hmm. as far as, Forrest Go, he did come out of the working class movement. Uh, so, like, I would just recommend, you know, uh, I think, Lula, the right thing to do here is just hand these farms over to the MST, and mm-hmm. then they can run them in a sustainable manner that isn't like slavery. There you go. Problem I solved. hope to see the this exact content in your bomb dia tweet Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, because that's the other thing. If you do that, imagine how many, like, Bolsonaristos that will make mad. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be that'll help you smoke them out of the government, which I know is one of the big things you're doing right now. So it's a win win yeah, well, as far I, as I'm concerned. And you know, I know one of the things that they've put the, the like they've pointed out that one of the, the biggest impediments to implementing reforms in Brazil has been the power of right wing governors in different mm-hmm. states. I'm just like, well, hey, here, this is a perfect opportunity. The governor of this state is allowing modern slavery to continue, kick them out of office, put somebody better in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And for our next story, we'd like to talk about what many people call the Brazil of the Midwest, Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure, let's go with it. So workers aren't just fighting against years-old precedents in the auto industry. This week, on Thursday, November 30th, a coalition of unions in Wisconsin, home at a cheese curd, filed a lawsuit <laughs> challenging the constitutionality of the state's ban on public worker unions. This law has been challenged several times before, but the current Democratic majority state Supreme Court has been slightly more open to reexamining the law. Yeah, which I, I did just want to comment on that because I'm like, look, I do agree the judges should be elected. I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I think when we talk about the big problem of judicial review as a concept, I'm just like, is like so anti-democratic. <laughs> Yeah, that like this is one of those things where I'm like, 
you're just this whole system just exposes the idea that you could have a you know impartial legal system on in a class-based society is just so goofy if like the makeup of the the election on the court changes what the law means then it's not really an impartial legal review is it <laughs> no it's an utterly by i mean it's a tool of the ruling class right <laughs> like, i mean mm-hmm. it's pretty right. obvious um, but this law, known as Act 10, was passed in 2011 by anti-worker governor Scott Walker and not by somewhat popular and very good experimental musical artist Scott Walker. <laughs> it evaded the most constitutional challenges by not explicitly banning public unions, but boxing them in legally to make them functionally impossible to run. The act bans wage demands above inflation, bans bargaining over any topic other than wages, bans dues checkoff, forces annual recertification and raises healthcare costs for public workers. So in every conceivable way makes it functionally impossible to, to keep a union running effectively. Yeah. This is the, the law that prompted those, you know, massive, massive protests mm-hmm. uh, back in 2011 where you had, you know, occup- like the workers occupying the state Capitol. That was like one, you know, one of those inspiring moments alongside, you know, the resurgence of the CTU that I feel like during like the Obama era were mm-hmm. some of those few bright spots of the labor movement trying to break out from years in the doldrums. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, Wisconsin does actually have a pretty interesting history of unions and their relationship to politics. But this lawsuit uh, points out that by exempting police from these attacks, which they always, always do, Mm -hmm. the law violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. The unions filing the lawsuit are Abbotsford Education Association, AFSCME, I can never say this acronym, (laughs) AFSCME Local 47, AFSCME Local 1215, Beaver Dam Education Association, SEIU Wisconsin, Teaching Assistance Association Local 3220, and Teamsters Local 695. So not an inconsiderable number of locals getting together to make sure that this uh, goes through. Also, I will say, I know it's just named after the town, but Beaver Dam Education Association is such a great name for a union. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine if you weren't from Beaver Dam and you went from you just like went with that. People would yeah. be like, how creative, you know? Um, yeah. But in a press release, the union coalition said, quote, low pay, staffing shortages, and worsening working conditions are hurting our ability to deliver to deliver public services to the communities that count on us every day. With worker organizing on the rise and public support for unions growing, workers are calling out Wisconsin law for what it is, blatant discrimination that limits workers' freedom to earn a fair wage, provide for their families, advocate for safety on the job, and enjoy a secure retirement, end quote. Absolutely correct. I would only add, uh, tell your folks I says hi and watch out for deer, okay? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean they're absolutely right and and the other thing as we pointed out before on the show like uh, constantly is like it's by making these conditions work worse for workers which is what you're doing by banning mm-hmm. unions you are making their business in this or in this case their employer mm-hmm. in this case the state and these agencies that it runs on worse because by making their working conditions worse you're going to make their output worse and in this case, that was, of course, intentional by this act because it's by these, you know, anti-government freaks in the in the GOP who are just like, no, no, 
everything should be privatized. So if we make it horrible to work for these places, then the, the services will be terrible and everybody will agree, oh, the state can't run anything. But then you run into the problem of all that there's the functions the state does that none of the private entities want to pay for because they're not profitable because libertarianism is a goofy, batshit idea that doesn't actually work. Mm-hmm. So, like, functionally, even for a capitalist society... You, you need a functioning government, <laughs> even the basic stuff like your tax assessor needs to work and like your uh, your board, your, your various departments of public works have to get your like sewers and your roads operational. So like even just from a liberal perspective, like you, you really like public workers being unionized is something you really kind of do want. <laughs> so uh, and also this would be a good ruling partially just because like there's plenty of other states that have attacks on public unions but have carve outs for the police. And I, I, if, if we have to have this horrible system of anti-democratic judicial review, perhaps there's some opportunity to weaponize that specific part of it to get rid of some of those attacks. I have an even better idea. We should universalize the exception for the police by not letting them have unions. (laughs) Well, yes, absolutely. It would be very funny if that was the outcome. They're like, actually, no, you're right. This is discrimination, but we're not going to get rid of the law. We're just going to get rid of the police. (laughs) That would be very funny. Not good because it would still be bad for the other workers, but it would be funny. <laughs> yeah, it makes it has a type. It has a Terry Gilliam kind of sensibility yeah. to it. Yeah, <laughs> but but for our last story this week, as always, we try to close with a happy story, folks. And so uh, we've covered a lot of academic union drives in the last few years, as it being really one of the hotbeds of new union organizing in the U.S. But you know. With all of these union victories around the country, one of the things that we often come up against is that the biggest challenge tends to be negotiating the first contract. Because while there is, you know, some and a little bit growing labor legislation to make companies bargain with unions, I'm thinking of also things like the Semex ruling by the NLRB, mm-hmm. that only makes them recognize the union. And it makes them come to the bargaining table. It doesn't actually make them sign a contract or actually bargain in good faith, which is why you have so many companies like Starbucks, Tesla, Lego, <laughs> who are, are totally willing to drag this stuff out and, and never agree to a contract. And so it was really good news this week to find out that the grad student workers at USC have reached a tentative deal for a first contract after over six months of negotiations. And so uh, 3,000 USC grad student workers who act as adjunct lecturers, researchers, and teaching assistants joined the UAW back in February. Uh, I think we did talk about that, but that was long enough ago that I don't remember which number it is. Um, But And so since then, the union and the school have been negotiating, and as it's dragged on through the year, the union began to ramp up pressure by threatening to strike. And that seems to have finally been the last piece of motivation that the UAW, uh, or sorry, that USC administrators needed to agree to better terms, leading to this past weekend's tentative agreement. And so... The New Deal will see workers' salaries rise by almost $5,000 at the start of 2024, uh, with following uh, years seeing 3% raises in each of the next two years for a total increase of about 20% to the stipends for the lowest paid workers over the life of the contract. Uh, But the core benefits of the contract are far beyond wages, and workers' stipends are still relatively low here. By the end of the deal, the lowest paid ones will be about $45,000. Obviously, uh, you know, that should be higher than that to be a living wage, especially in Southern California. Mm -hmm. But 
the again, this is another one of those contracts where it's like they were fighting for better wages, but there were other provisions that were really the biggest things that workers were fighting for. And those include uh, the first ever independent grievance procedure for student workers, which is one that we see is a really big demand by workers all across, like grad student workers across the country, because in so many of these like academic institutions, the only way to like put a complaint up is to go to your advisor, who is usually the person you're filing the complaint against. Yeah. Uh, so without an independent, you know, arbitration procedure and grievance procedure, it's very easy for that sort of abuse to become institutionalized. Um, and so uh, in addition to the grievance procedure, it provides childcare benefits and parental leave as well, including one semester of guaranteed parental leave, one semester of health leave, five annual sick days, and five days of bereavement leave, all for the first time. Um, That's so interesting. I the way it's parceled out sometimes makes it confusing for me how big of an improvement that really is. But it seems like that's actually a pretty good amount of I mean, time away from work. A semester of parental leave is good. That's that's more than you get at most businesses right. in the U.S. Um, that's probably around what you get, like in the sort of prof- for like the professional class, air sure. quotes, whatever that means. Um, but for most people, that's that's better. Like, obviously, it's worse than a lot of other places that may give you, you know, six months, nine months, even longer. Uh, but for the U.S., that's quite good. Um, that's true. And the deal also, and this is another thing that has been very a very common demand that uh, academic student unions have been fighting for, uh, which is more support and protections for international students, uh, including a fund to help those dealing with visa issues in our arcane, racist immigration system. Uh, one worker, uh, Anand Balakrishnan, a computer science uh, PhD student from India, told the LA Times, quote, these are big things. For as an international student, the constant sort of fear that we have is that we lose our student status out of nowhere, and then we just have to pack up and leave, which is really scary. But if we have a strong protection for this, along with the non-discrimination article, then we can be a lot more confident, end quote. Absolutely. And I mean, this is something that we see in uh, education pretty often is that these institutions have a long and and current, uh, you know, continuous history of just handling international students, whichever way is the most convenient to the mm-hmm. administration with at, with zero regard and sometimes even deliberate cruelty included in the way that they they handle the lives of these students. Well, and it's also it's one of the most common ways they try to union bust is to mm-hmm. try and 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 really ramp up that fear among international students to be like, oh, you want more rights? Hmm, seems like seems like you're causing discontent here. Be a real shame if anything happened to your visa. Like yeah. they they do that sort of like gross extortionary shit, which which is really you know that that's why this these sorts of protections are so important because now having these in a contract, you know, the next time they go to strike they can't make those same threats because it's like, no, 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 no. We have these protections and you can't violate status quo. So I think those are those are really big wins. And so uh, Step Mays, a, a PhD student in environmental engineering and member of the bargaining committee, told the LA Times that the deal represents, quote, the best contract in the private sector of higher education made possible by mass participation. Graduate student workers' first contract will improve the lives of thousands of workers at USC and create a culture of accountability, end quote. So hell yeah, solidarity and congratulations to the grad student workers at USC. Yeah, nothing but respect. I mean, um, we talk a lot about the wave of academic organizing and it's like, 
unlike a lot of other ones, it feels like it's been very steady. There wasn't like, yeah. there have been some bumps, but there hasn't been like one huge peak. And then what do we do now? It's just been like a real strong, continuous march in mostly the right direction. So, yeah, you yeah. have like Columbia and mm-hmm. then a couple other schools. And then when COVID hit, just boom. Yeah. Everywhere. It just started every week. There was like a new, a new thing to talk about. And speaking of stuff that come across, our computer screens every week. Uh, it's time for us to finally transition into the meme review, everybody's favorite portion of the show. And did we even mention that Kissinger no. died yet? Wow. We are we are not nailing this. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had a lot to talk about. And That's we true. are very, I mean, look, I know everybody always wants to do the killjoy thing of, oh, well, is it really a victory? He died, lived a bazillion years and died happily in his bed. Shut up. Yeah, shut up. Do you even do you even have fun when you go to the movies? Do you even enjoy things that you read? What's wrong with you? No one is under the impression that the the death of Henry Kissinger like is gonna immediately launch, you know, a a a revolutionary period or that that somehow gets rid of all the problems of our society. We're just glad that one of the worst people still living is not alive anymore. Yeah, it's funny when people are like, oh, he won. Don't you know that he won? And it's like, yeah, that's why it was important that he finally died. (laughs) <laughs> yeah because exactly. winning doesn't mean that he just stopped he was still making international trips to every region of the fucking world well into his hundredth year of being alive but anyway we have the classic grim reaper playing the uh, claw picking machine meme and of course it says at the top is henry kissinger even in and then it just says i got him i finally <laughs> fucking got him <laughs> i saw so many different like versions of this one because i mean it's like how many years have we been using this same meme for like uh, other older so like people who 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 die and then it's just yeah because it was always the you know is kissinger even in this thing it's pat sajak <laughs> or somebody who pat sajak is probably still alive but like <laughs> or somebody else and now if I, I saw like probably a dozen different versions of this one. <laughs> oh yeah i saw this meme format going to heaven and it was like was i yeah. a good meme yeah <laughs> but yeah absolutely love all of the hooray kissinger is dead memes those there's there's a, a ton of really great ones uh, definitely a big fan. I did love one of the ones was just, I saw that it was just a tweet. It was an anecdote of like Gore, somebody like being at the Sistine chapel with Gore Vidal, uh, <laughs> And Kissinger walks by, which is a, this is the most like 1977 story that's ever occurred. And he's like looking at a painting of like, uh, of, of hell or what, or like some, some giant mural at the, at, uh, the Sistine Chapel. And Gore Vidal is like, look, he's apartment shopping. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, that shit's great. But so our next one, I just, I love this one. This is from, this is a tweet from the Eugene V. Museum. And it's so it, it it's, it's a caption and then a picture. And so the caption starts Woodrow Wilson, Gene Debs, you have to stop. You smoke too tough. Your swag too different. Your girl too bad. We'll jail you, Gene Debs. And then it's a picture of one of Gene Debs' actual campaign buttons, which is just a picture of him labeled for president, convict number 9653. God, that's so cool. When the the fucking criminal-ass state tries to go after you, the coolest thing you can do is turn it into swag to get people on your side. Afro Man did this very successfully very recently. I think one of the best things about this too is that like people tried to do this with Trump 
like when he had to go get his mug shot and it didn't work. And there were people were like the, the right was like, Hey, but you think like people that like get arrested are cool. It's like, yeah, good people. Yeah. Young thug is cool. <laughs> yeah. Obviously young thug is cool. He's a popular rapper, but you want me to go to bat for Donald Trump, the biggest right. wettest boy in the universe. <laughs> yeah. No Gene Debs for like convict for president. Extremely cool. Trump convict for president. Extremely lame. Yeah. So very boring, simple, stupid. very easy to understand if you're normal. <laughs> Well, speaking of easy to understand, uh, our next <laughs> meme really serves it to, I mean, just spoon feeds you the class analysis. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is two guys in an office environment, and the first guy says to the next one, this is the supervisor talking to the new hire, it seems, welcome to your new job. We're like a family here. And then in the next panel, you see a, a handcuff with a chain attached to the desk, presumably, getting slapped on his wrist. And then in the third panel, you see that it is, in fact, attached to the desk. And then a guy pops up in the fourth panel from uh, the cubicle next to him, and he says, what are you in for and the guy just says wife and kids you and the guy in the other cubicle just goes student loans <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean this one I, I this is one of those ones where i, I was just like Sometimes I do think that people go a little uh, too indirect and a bit too metaphorical with their mm -hmm. memes for their class analysis. And this one is just like, what if we went really, really literal? Yeah. Well, it kind of <laughs> reminds me of like, um, you know, you get the Foucauldian analysis that's like, you know, schools and offices are like prisons and barracks. And then you get people like Marx who they might be using Gothic metaphors or whatever, but they'll tell you, actually, it is a prison. It is exactly a barracks. <laughs> yeah. That is what it is, period, full stop. <laughs> yeah it's not just a discursive thing it's like no literally like the it's a dictatorship it, all like, institutions is. in the capitalist <laughs> world are 16th century prussian military academies more or less <laughs> yeah pretty much so but this next one is very very simple but i think is very much in the same vein and it's one that i i genuinely i try to use as a line similar to this <laughs> when i'm talking to people at work sometimes uh you got to pick the right people though mm -hmm. um, and this is just work really hard and this could be you and then it's a picture of a tombstone that just says worked really hard <laughs> <laughs> It's so true, though, but it, like this would really piss off the wrong person because they'd be like, actually, I worked really hard and got really far. And then you're like, oh, yeah, How, what'd you get from your dad? What'd your dad have? <laughs> well, because this is one of the this is one of those ones that I'll keep on deck if I'm like with a coworker who's like at the same level like, as me, not like mm -hmm. a supervisor or something. And, and, and if I'm like trying to leave early or something, they're like, oh, well, we're technically not supposed to leave till whenever. And then I always want to be like, you know. Nobody on their deathbed is ever like, I wish I spent more time in the office. Yeah, stayed at the office till five. Put that on my tombstone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's that's like, like no. we, we just got this Zoomer kid um, parking next to me in the garage who just got hired recently, and I tried out Act Your Wage on him, and he thought it was <laughs> nice. fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, but rules. yeah, so our, <laughs> our last meme is just a image of Sun Tzu, and it says... <laughs> Quote, live your life in such a way that people don't laugh when you get stabbed in prison. End quote. <laughs> Sun Tzu. This is definitely, this is, this is from The Art of War. I remember reading it when he mm -hmm. talked about Derek Chauvin getting stabbed in prison and us all laughing about yeah, it. You know, Sun Tzu, <laughs> uh, important uh, philosopher and writer in many respects, but highly underrated as a topical stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. Yeah, I just threw this one in here because I just wanted to be like, hey, remember how Derek Chauvin, that big piece of shit, got stabbed in prison? Wasn't that great? Hell yeah. Well, I, I also <laughs> like this because a lot of like weird, uh, like American, like, uh, you know, pro cop, highly reactionary dudes will like include Sun Tzu in their like essential reading lists of like real, the real canon of philosophy, despite obviously having never read any of it right if Sun Tzu was alive today he would instantly eviscerate your Ed Hardy Oakley's wearing ass <laughs> yes in two seconds flat bro <laughs> yeah absolutely well because it'll just be like they'll read you know the line that's like all warfare is the art of deception mm. and then they'll be like and that's why I can commit financial fraud because I'm <laughs> deceiving the government <laughs> it's like yeah to a certain extent but if you do it against the wrong people because you miss the whole class thing then uh, you're going to go to jail, Sam Bankman. For yeah, it's like Sun Tzu wrote this really <laughs> extensive treatment of like how to play poker and bluff appropriately and do all the right things. And dudes in the West are just like, go all in every time, pre-flop. Right, yes. Got it. <laughs> I'm understanding this perfectly, bro. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, since Lena's not here to do the outro, I guess I'll do the intro and outro. So thank you so much for listening to Work Stoppage. We're an entirely listener-supported show. As I said at the top, we only get support uh, on Patreon. So go over there if you want to hear a little bit more and throw us a few bucks. Hop in the Discord if you just want people to talk to. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you want to help the show in a, in a different fashion. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Work Stoppage Pod. I'm at Facebook Villain. Uh, you can find all of our stuff at workstoppagepod.com, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, listen to my sh other show, BP Bledis. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Hell yeah. Hey, you, blow your whistle!
Hail up the heights Anyone can get it, my machine ain't biased When big man I talk, please keep quiet Start up a riot if the pussy all try it Black outfit to match the balaclava Right now Frisa get a little darker Big 357, teach man a lesson Chance in me face, man I name 